Welcome to Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast. In this format, we bring you timely and relevant conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Join us as we explore new ways of thinking about the markets, investing, business, new technologies, and life in general. In this episode, our guest is Lewis Silverman, Managing Director of Oppenheimer Equity Capital Markets. And our host is Jane Ross, Managing Director of Oppenheimer Investment Banking. This episode was recorded on January 15, 2021. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to click on the subscribe button. Welcome to our episode titled Capital Markets, What Now? For all of us, small investors and big, 2020 was a crazy expectation-busting year, and we're here to talk about some of the bright spots, deal activity and access to capital. Many of our expectations of growth and earnings and market performance were all severely tested last year. And look at what happened. In January, the consensus estimate was for the S&P 500 to rise 2.7% in 2020, 2.7%. Then the pandemic hit, all the economic and personal devastation. We had Fed interventions, the election, vaccines, and at the finish line, the S&P 500 was up over 16%, the NASDAQ up 44%, and IPO capital raising up 42%. Talk about a major expectation disconnect. So the question before us is what now? In this episode, we'll take a look at the capital markets in 2020, deal activity, participants, and trends. Then we'll talk about SPACs, given their prominence in the 2020 investment landscape. We'll discuss how SPACs have evolved and whether they represent an aberration or a trend. And finally, as always, we'll talk future and discuss the outlook for 2021 and beyond. Our guest today is Lou Silberman, Managing Director in Equity Capital Markets here at Oppenheimer. Lou's focus is on the origination and execution of IPOs, follow-ons, and merger financings. In this role, Lou sits at the nexus of corporate issuers, the firm's investment banking platform, and our capital markets distribution capabilities. Lou's been at the firm for over 20 years, a tenure that includes years in investment banking, as well as years as the head of Oppenheimer's institutional equity sales business. So, needless to say, Lou is the right guy for this discussion. Welcome, Lou. Hey, Jane. Thank you. It's great to join you today. Yeah, I wish we could do it in person and not in Zoom, but here we are. Let's start by unpacking the market a bit in 2020. It was certainly a roller coaster year, and you had a prominent seat on the ride. So can you talk about some of the twists and turns that we experienced? Absolutely. So 2020 was was an interesting year, to say the least. And you know, from a capital market standpoint, the defining event of the year, of course, uh, you know, was was the March crash. It was a really unusual dynamic. The COVID pandemic had, uh, you know, kind of started to uh, creep into our collective conscience in January, and the world is aware that that you know COVID was was 
you know, an emerging pandemic and, and, and was growing more serious. And it really started to snowball in February that the markets you know, hadn't really been reacting. We were still in February hitting new highs. It wasn't until kind of late February, early March or so that the proverbial car drove off the cliff. And, mm-hmm. and when you look back at a, a chart of, of the S&P last year, you saw in that time period, the S&P fell from roughly 3,400 to 2,200 in just a matter of weeks. So we really did have, have a crash. And once the market bottomed out, and it happened very quickly, a major rally started. And as you point out, we ended the year with significantly positive performance across uh, all the major indices. And, and from a capital market standpoint, 2020 was, was truly a banner year. And so while we're on that concept of the trajectory of the car careening all over the place, what that look like in terms of deal activity? Yeah, so so the beginning of the year was was kind of a normal start to the year, you know, despite having kind of this you know, looming emerging pandemic in, in the background. Um, what made this year or or 2020, I should say, very different is that once the market bottomed out, uh, we saw a, a very rapid you know, series of progressions of the types of issuers that were going into the capital markets uh, looking for cash. And the way I would think about it is is the following. So every business has a forecast or or a plan for what happens when revenue drops 5% or 10% or or maybe even 20 or 25%. But but I think prior to COVID, you really would have been hard-pressed to find companies that were prepared for a black swan type event where their revenues drop in half almost overnight. And True. so what yeah. you saw was that there were a handful of companies very early on who were particularly battered by COVID. So think airlines or cruise lines or hotel companies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who, whose businesses dropped precipitously, instantaneously who had to go into the capital markets to to bolster their balance sheet. And, and once we saw some successful raises there, companies who were either looking to bolster their balance sheet, you know, for defensive purposes or ultimately for opportunistic raises started to to come to the market and the dynamic that started to drive very meaningful momentum for the year is that once a company raised that cash, their stocks were frequently responding extremely well because investors effectively said, this company's got a stronger balance sheet. It it can survive through this. And and that cash is such an important asset when there's so much uncertainty. uh, Yeah. There's there's like a circularity to it. Exactly. So, that progression uh, from our vantage point, um, you know, really took place over the course of, of the spring. And we were a very big you know, beneficiary kind of in the, in the second quarter and, and third quarter in particular, where Oppenheimer's capital markets revenues were up year over year in, mm. in 3Q. Talk about that versus expectations. It's crazy. Yeah, that's probably the best adjective to, to describe it. And it's one that 
you know, I certainly find myself using quite frequently. There were really two kind of broad categories of, of businesses that, that we financed uh, over the course of the year. And, and I go back to that kind of, you know, offensive, uh, you know, versus defensive uh, type of posturing, you know, on the former, there were a number of companies who looked at the pandemic either as an opportunity because the business that they were in, in, in its own right, that, you know, they would be a relative survivor, in fact, may come out of the pandemic kind of in better shape. And so they wanted to take advantage of what was a very wide open capital markets window to mm-hmm. you know, further strengthen that positioning. Um, and then, you know, the defensive types of raises where, again, uh, because business so quickly got so poor, for so many companies, unfortunately, having investors who were very willing uh, and excited about participating in uh, public capital raises, looking to deploy cash, uh, there were so many companies that, that were able to take advantage of that. Uh, and you know, I think it's a testament to the strength of the, uh, the U.S. capital markets that you know, at a time when there were so many businesses that, that needed financing, that the public markets were were there and and wallets were were wide open. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, I did a episode last year with Daron Barnes and he talked about sort of this weird circular phenomenon where retail participation and social media participation kind of fueled things um in a in a very extreme way last year. Did you notice that kind of phenomenon in, in deal flow where there were the anointed good deals or the good sectors, or was it more widespread? A little bit of the latter, I would say, on balance. The majority of the shares that, that we place in transactions end up in institutional investors' hands. There's always a retail component to our deals, but they generally go more into the hands of institutional investors. We did see that phenomenon certainly in the SPAC market, and we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about that topic later on in the podcast. Um, but I think the bigger driver along those lines with institutional investors is that you know that there seemed to be once we very very quickly hit bottom, you know, some kind of extreme positioning changes and a little bit of fear of missing out where. Funds, you know, be it traditional long-only asset managers or hedge funds, were finding that you know, the world had changed mm-hmm. uh, very, very quickly, and there was, you know, therefore, you know, the logical response to that was a, a change in in tactic or a change in how you want your portfolio to be invested, and therefore. You know, many of the transactions that we were part of, you know, allowed institutional investors to, in you know, a very quick fashion, reallocate positions, reallocate cash to companies that they wanted to be invested in that they felt were either the right companies for where we were in the cycle and against the backdrop of of the environment that we were in, or in the case of you know some of the more defensive capital raises that they were either getting in at a price that looked quite attractive to them. So, you know, the, the, the deal itself was an opportunity or again, back to this concept of the self-fulfilling prophecy where 
funding a business through the capital markets positioned it to be a survivor through through the pandemic. Right. Well, you threw out SPACs, and, and we do want to spend some time on that today. You know, clearly SPACs rose to big prominence in 2020, right? Big part of the deal flow. Yeah. So SPACs were roughly half of the IPO market in 2020, wow. which is a an, an absolutely stunning statistic. Uh, when you look back at, at the history of the product, there were 248 SPAC IPOs in 2020 that, that collectively raised uh, just over $83 billion. You wow. compare that to 2019, where there were 59 IPOs that raised $13.6 billion. And we had been on kind of a, a three-year trajectory, 17, 18, 19, where the amount of capital raised was kind of in that 10 to $15 billion range. And I think there were a few things that really fueled the, the SPAC fire. Can you just provide us with a quick definition of a SPAC, special purpose acquisition company? What are we talking about? Absolutely. So a SPAC, which is also known uh, as a blank check company, is a vehicle that is formed by a sponsor group for the purpose of taking a private business public through what's known as a business combination. So let's unpack that for a second. The sponsor group is generally comprised of well-known or well-seasoned either entrepreneurs, former public company CEOs. In some cases, we've seen celebrities, politicians, effectively anybody that has access to interesting proprietary, actionable deal flow in the realm of private businesses. That sponsor group goes and raises an IPO through an mm -hmm. underwriter like Oppenheimer. The proceeds from that IPO go into a trust account, which invests in treasuries or other risk-free instruments. The sponsor group goes out and looks for that combination target and then merges with that target and that private company comes public through the shell uh, of the SPAC. Uh, that's a bit of an oversimplification of the process. Now you said that clearly last year we saw unprecedented volume and issuance. We saw deal size go up. So all of those things seem to validate SPACs, what are some of the advantages of doing a deal this way? There are a few very, very distinct differences between uh, coming public through a SPAC and doing it in a traditional uh, mm -hmm. S1 IPO that we've been used to for, for many, many years. At the top of the list is the ability for a SPAC to provide forward projections for the business that they are uh, uh, combining with. Okay. Um, and so what that means is that unlike uh, a regular way S1 IPO in which the prospectus has a lot of information about the history of the business, mm -hmm. uh, with a, a SPAC, there are, you're kind of looking into the future and the company that is coming public will tell investors what they see over the next several years and that's been a very good way to get earlier stage businesses public. In 2020, we saw a number of companies in the electric vehicle space, in the LIDAR 
space, in the battery space, businesses who um, are really seeing their revenue take off in a meaningful way and projections looking out a very, very high growth rate. Being able to describe what their business is going to look like quantitatively in two, three, four years down the road, uh, that's a tool that can be utilized to educate investors on the trajectory for the business and ultimately help get investors comfortable with the valuation uh, assigned to the business. Right. And I would add there that a bunch of the silos that you just mentioned are great silos for Oppenheimer. So it matches us well with our skill set. But that is an advantage. That could be a disadvantage too, right? Yeah, of course. So that is something that will likely play out over the next few years. So when you look at certain businesses that have provided 2025, 2026, beyond uh, estimates for revenue, for example, we won't know for a while, but for the time being, investors, for the most part, are open to the construct, giving these businesses the benefit of the doubt. Now, there have been a few deals that have closed over the course of the year where mm-hmm. there have been disappointment. So mm-hmm. there's, uh, you know, by no means, you know, is the SPAC market immune from disappointing uh, investors. Probably the biggest disappointment was was one of the highest flying companies that came public through the SPAC market, which was Nikola, which is a uh, an electric truck business. And there were some accusations around the business, the forecasts that the company vigorously uh, defended against. However, you know, the damage was done and stock you know, took quite a fall from its highs. But for the most part, 2020, the the transactions that have taken place and the businesses that have had you know nearer term revenue events um, have really lived up to their promises. And in fact, there uh, have been a number of business combinations, companies that have come public through the SPAC market that have continued to um, surprise to the upside and. Uh, you know, really drawn higher quality uh, investors, targets, sponsors, capital partners uh, into this back product uh, versus what it looked like a few years ago. And the other thing that's been very helpful to, to the SPAC market is that we've been in a persistent low rate environment. Right. Uh, and a key feature of SPACs for investors uh, is that when you put your money into the IPO or you buy the stock in the aftermarket uh, post IPO, mm-hmm. uh, when it's time to close the business combination, uh, the shareholder has the opportunity not only to vote yes or no on the transaction, but they also have the ability to redeem their shares to get their cash back mm-hmm. that's sitting in, in the trust. Uh, And so there is, if you elect that redemption option, then by definition, the SPAC is a principal protected vehicle that has equity upside to it because the deal can be very, very well received. And so with rates as low as they are and, and investors looking for something that has safety and yield to it, SPACs have emerged as um, in some cases, you know, almost a cash management tool uh, for some investors where they, they know that they always have the opportunity to get their money back at the time of the business combination closing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
they still are able to hang on to that potential for equity upside. We threw out the question at the start of all this, are SPACs a trend? Certainly sounds like with the features, principal protection, a broadening of the investor base, an increase in the size of each deals. Sounds like you think this is a trend. It certainly feels that way. The other key feature that I think is worth bringing up is that um, you, you can come to market very quickly. The, the traditional IPO process is lengthy, it is difficult, and, and not every company you know, should go public through a SPAC, of course. There's still always going to be uh, lots of room and opportunity, and it'll be appropriate for many, many companies to do a traditional IPO. But it can be a tough process, and the SPAC vehicle provides more speed and, in some cases, kind of more certainty uh, with respect to the capital raised, uh, especially for some of the younger companies and more emerging growth companies that that are finding themselves uh, as SPAC targets to to come to the public markets. To the extent that there's still a lot of interest in you know companies that uh, have you know, the kind of growth characteristics that are exciting to SPAC investors or profile that uh, makes them suitable to be public companies, this really has emerged not only as as kind of a credible alternative to an IPO, but in many cases, it's being viewed as a as a superior option to a traditional IPO. Well, Lou, we have arrived at the point where we are tasked to talk future and look ahead. And you know, coming into the year, we certainly have some strong tailwinds. We have a huge household savings rate increase. We still have very low interest rates. Um, at some point, COVID is going to recede, but I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts about what you think the deal landscape is going to look like going forward. Glad to. So you know, needless to say, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but you know, there are Darn. a few things that we're, <laughs> that we're watching for or, or, or that we expect. Uh, I mean, just as a, a segue on, on the SPAC market, given that there were so many IPOs launched and, and the SPAC sponsors have a prescribed time frame in which they need to go find a deal, and it's generally either 18 or 24 months, mm-hmm. uh, and, and usually it's well within that, um, we would expect 2021 to have lots and lots of SPAC mergers. So we should see many, many business combination announcements uh, taking place over the next 12 months. Uh, the IPO trend in SPACs also should continue. You know, here at Oppenheimer, we've been growing our SPAC practice very, very quickly. And as you say, you know, it does line up very, very well with our capabilities, not just from a sector standpoint where, um, you know, our either research or corporate access or banking expertise um, allows us to uh, be a trusted advisor to either sponsors or, or target companies, but also from a size perspective. And most mm-hmm. of the businesses that are coming public through SPACs are kind of round about a billion dollars of enterprise value, you know, some a little bit smaller, some a little bit bigger. Um, but you know, that kind of small and mid-cap focus uh, really does dovetail very nicely with uh, you know, our power alleys here at Oppenheimer and, and where we have excelled. Mm-hmm. Um, so one you know, kind of prediction or, or one thing that we expect to see in 2021 is, is continued activity uh, in, in the SPAC market, particularly 
on what we call the back end, the uh, the mergers. The second thing that that we would expect, and and this is probably pretty intuitive, is that COVID beneficiaries really outperformed for much of 2020. And so, you know, the top of the list of best performing stocks, if you owned shares of Zoom or Peloton or the food delivery companies, you know, anything that was work from home or eat at home or stay at home, do everything at home, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you did really well. And, and we would expect that that will continue. That'll be a place where investors will continue to take an active interest. But I think it'll evolve somewhat where you, know, you referenced that we you know, are, are, are starting to see vaccinations and, you know, the, the kind of hopefully beginning of the end is, is someone in, in sight. And lots of smart people out there believe that there will be a very meaningful uh, economic boom, potentially, as everyone has been cooped up in their homes for, for nine months or, or a year by the time uh, this is over or, or longer you know, we'll, we'll get out there and some of that, you know, elevated savings rate will find its way into goods and experiences that are priorities for, for spending. And so, um, you know, we, we think that there will be a little bit of a, a shift from, you know, these kind of somewhat obvious, you know, nesting plays to, you know, businesses that are going to benefit um, from the recovery that we see ultimately. So, so that's, that's an area that we're very, very focused on. Lastly, in terms of a, a trend, I think that I'd be remiss if, if you know, we didn't talk about politics for a second, which is always a dangerous thing to do uh, on a podcast. Uh, so, <laughs> so I'll tread carefully, but we've got to change in administration. And, and of course, you know, that means that there's going to be different spending priorities and you know, whether that means infrastructure or you know, environmental concerns. Um, you know, there's a strong view that there is going to be kind of a, a re-globalization, things like that. Those are going to be of, of greater interest to investors. And so companies that address some of those priorities, and, and we've seen already, you know, a lot of excitement around, you know, companies that are leveraged to an infrastructure boom, perhaps, or renewable energy, things like that. We expect that that, that should continue. And, and here at Oppenheimer, as you point out, you know, th- those are industries that we have a lot of experience with and, and spend a lot of time on the research side, uh, as well as banking uh, companies in, in those industries. Well, it's certainly a nice note to be able to end with words like boom and recovery and experiences and getting out. I like where this took us to. Lou, thank you so much for your time today. Very informative, interesting discussion. Thanks for the opportunity to join you today. Really appreciate it. Don't miss the next episode of Let's Talk Future as we explore a variety of topics important to every kind of investor by bringing our firm's financial thought leaders directly to you. Hit the subscribe button today.